April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. This is Podcaster and Commander, an audio documentary podcast series about the seafaring classic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The series will be an oral history of the film's conception and production, a discussion of the film's critical reception, and the increasing resonance in the now 20 years since its release. In this movie, Creation, he plays Charles Darwin, and it's very close to who he plays in this film. Yeah, and, and it's sort of like the all of the things that were great, like... I remember when Creation came out, they were like, ooh, this could be an Oscar run for um, fucking Paul Bettany. And Jennifer Connolly, his actual IRL wife, played his first cousin and also Darwin's mm. IRL wife. <laughs> Got that first cousin energy, you know what I mean? Anyway, there was a bunch of stuff in that film where I was like, I feel like he honed this in Master and Commander. Master and Commander was where he figured out the nuances of this character and then had a whole movie of doing that. And the thing you realise when you see Creation it's like, you don't want a whole movie of that. <laughs> you don't. It, it works amongst, it works wedged amongst the practical pragmatism of Russell Crowe's character. They are the perfect, like, yin and yang for each other. And the balance of the two of them and their stories throughout the film is truly the core of the story to me. It's like that dynamic between the two of them. You'd know, you love fucking movies about boys that are like on opposite sides of the coin. Like fucking, this is basically just heat at sea with like more fucking slacks really and peg boys. If like Peter Weir could get 10% of the irrational love that Baz Luhrmann gets. Oh yeah. 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 Like we sit here every single 90. time and they 90. go... They go like, ah, oh, Baz has done it again. And he splashes out and everyone's like, pretends like they're the greatest films ever. And there's Peter Weir knocking it out of the park. And you just go... <laughs> Peter Weir, that? hold my, hold my, yeah, hold my he, sailboat. Like how he, and he doesn't even really come up... Like, when everyone rattles off their, you know, yeah. cliche names that they rattle off, he really doesn't come in until sort of people's 15 to 20. But then when you look at the filmography, they're all bangers. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a weird thing that maybe, and maybe that he did sort of come away from the public eye a bit is why he's sort of revered but not sort of beloved in that sense. That's right, sailors. This crew is good. Featuring best-selling author, screenwriter, film curator, and pop culture etymologist and host of Josie and the Podcats, Maria Lewis.
listeners of your show won't know because um, this is information only women know. And as we know, <laughs> there are literally two women who listen to the show. And one of them's Katie Walsh and the other is me, right? Former host of the Cinephiles podcast and one of the best film minds I know, Stu Coop. Shame on every film that can't do it, especially the big people trying to set up franchises and whatnot. You can yeah. come out of that movie and you can rattle off at least 15 characters and you know them through just efficient writing yeah, you may not name telling, you, you know, but you know you can it, yeah. say, "Yeah, this guy does that." That it's it's Ocean's Eleven. It's just yeah. <laughs> so well that you can know their quirks. Whereas you get the and I come back to it again, the 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 three Hobbit films. Yeah. I don't know a single Hobbit by the end of it. Trailblazing film journalist behind the now twenty year plus odyssey that has been DarkHorizons.com, the T1000 of movie journalism, Garth Franklin. The idea of the ship as well, that's where the sound design and the production design is all so key to that film, yeah. with all the creaking of the... Because a ship is never quiet. It's always the sea or the swaying of the breeze, mm. breeze coming through and yeah. through the cracks in the wood and so forth. Even the rats. Yeah. yeah. Like the rats moving around. Academy Award-winning director, behind Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Australia's greatest living filmmaker. Finally... Here is Peter Weir. You know, you really need to spend a lot of time with these people, uh, not just the movie length. The narrator for the series is me, Ken Jacob. Theme doctor, Andrew Villa. And I am your captain, Blake Howard. Episode 7, Beat to Quarters. Before we get to the great Peter Weir and the story of how his appearance on Podcaster and Commander came to be. Let's tune up with our crew members, Maria Lewis, Stu Coote, and Garth Franklin, and hear them explain why Master and Commander continues to resonate with them. Cheers. Cheers to you both. Good to be back. Good to see you. Now this one... Master and Commander, the far side of the world. Very recently, let's start with something that happened on Letterboxd, of all places. Shukut. Yes, yes, I added it to my, my top To your top to my, four. To my four, yeah. To your four. It bumped off Unbreakable. Oh, my oh, goodness. Wow. Yeah, did it after we watched it at the Orpheum mm. recently. Oh, yeah. What was that, okay. a couple of weeks, six yeah, weeks ago? Yeah, two months ago. Yeah. How was that? Oh, an experience. That was know. a really special viewing. It's those who don't know the theater is like a really elaborate art deco kind of theater, very big, well, like there's like an organ that comes up through the floor. Which <laughs> you know, in my in my business, that's pretty common. Um, <laughs> but it's yeah, no, it's it's really amazing, and the sound design for that kind of film, where sound design is sort of key, it's yeah. Special. And big turnout for it was like a Sunday yeah. night screening. Sunday, yeah, Sunday night. There's a couple of hundred people there. No guests, like, no nothing like no. that. And it was packed. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Not a not a false shot in the film. Yeah, it's um, in every one of the projects, and I and in an upcoming episode, um, I really sort of was like trying to peel back the onion as to why, you know, what I'm chasing with this one, right? Because every project has a chase. It's stra- strangely, I feel like there's like a chase, whether it's intentional or not. With Heat, it was like I needed it out of my system, and with Zodiac, it was like, well, if I'm going to do it, it's got to be this kind of investigation with all the president's minutes. It was like I have to do it now. There was an urgency that felt like so key to the time that it was being produced as versus the time that the film was made and all that sort of stuff. And this one, I was trying to pin down what it was about it, and I guess one of the uh, kind of mythical and more magical things about it is that. 
Peter Weir is a filmmaker who, like, he hasn't passed away. And no. he, he hasn't passed away. He's got an incredible resume. He just stopped. And this film is like his second last film and it's so and, and and you lead into everything that he's done and it's all so good that it's like how did the best Australian filmmaker stop making films? Well, and all, I, I kind of think of him like the Australian Enya. Yeah. You know how she yeah. disappeared and like lived in a castle somewhere <laughs> in Ireland. Yeah. Like, like him, he's like he's off in some beach house somewhere. <laughs> I was more conscious of this film being a masterpiece first and then being good second. And I think also that might have been initially part of my reluctance because it was such a big... Yes. It was such a big movie in awards season that year. Like, how many Oscars was it nominated for? Like, 10 or some shit? Yeah, it was nominated for, I think, yeah, 7 to 10, something right. like that. Right, like, it won two, but, like, it was up for Best Picture. It was up for everything, all your major categories, right? Except, again, this is the tricky thing with an ensemble film like this, even though, like, Bettany and Crow are really at the core of it, is their performances don't get in as much appreciation as, like, standalone bits. Like, if it was just, like, Crow doing a monologue and it's just him in the boat, like, Brokeback Mountain, but, you know, <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal's a boat, which many would say, performance-wise, he can be sometimes. But that probably would have stood out more rather than, oh, we have 25 characters and every single one of them is fucking sick and they're all doing masterful work in big bits, small bits, fun accents, weird accents over here. Anyway as well as your major parts. But that was initially part of my resistance because I think oftentimes with the ward season, especially when you're having to cover it as a film reporter, like I was at the time, and in and around that era, uh, the cyclical nature of just taking up volume in the room. And this is the era of like... This, it's, it, this is super hyperbole era. Like well, this they is pre-Me Too. So yeah. like Weinstein is all over it. Yeah. He is like fucking shelling out big bucks to get things and agendas pushed and other studios and companies are trying to compete with that. And so it's like, it really is like the moment, the movement. And it's in a time almost pre-internet discourse. Like it's there, but it's not really there yet. So it really did feel like this stuff was important. And that's what I remember more than anything initially about this film was it was that this is, it's masterpiece and commander. Yes. That was the whole vibe. And like, it's got all these Oscars and that's all you would see was on the ads. Cause we got the film post award season. Well, not post in the process of, and they were like, it, it had already, 10 it already, time nominated film, blah, blah, blah. It already had a lot of run up internationally before it was locally yes. released. Yeah. So that was my perception of it was like this big masterpiece. And I'll be honest with you. Like I have never, it wasn't until this film that I felt an attachment to Peter Weir's work. Like this was the, this was the gateway drug for me. I was in love with this movie when I saw it and thought, Oh, it's so rare that films that get hyped up as masterpieces, then you go and watch... In in the context of award season, oh, masterpieces, every film that's nominated is a masterpiece. That's not true. Um, oftentimes it takes time to, for like this, the granules of sand to shake loose and for the actual truth to be revealed. No, sorry. I was like, oh, no, this is genuinely a masterpiece. But I also think the thing that's undervalued about Master and Commander, um, is that it's entertaining. Yes. It's 
an action film. It's a thriller. It's like it's got comedy beats. It's yes. got jokes. It's got heartfelt moments. It's got all the tones. It it somehow somehow is able to like the mix of that very complex recipe. Everything, mm. nothing's overpowering the next thing. It just yes. works. I was thinking about it a lot in the context of The Woman King, which I was saying to you was my favorite film of 2022. Saw it three times. The movies loved it. Came out of it like. <laughs> that film in part Probably explains your broken ankle. Why? <laughs> yeah, to explain so much. In part, why that film is a masterpiece and why it has become a huge box office hit and one of the biggest box office accessories of 2022 for the budget and the ratio and you know the representation, all that is it's entertaining. Yeah. First and foremost, is it an important story? Does it have nuanced, complex female leads? Does it show black characters with all types of complexities and nuance? Does it have some of the best hand-to-hand action combat scenes I've ever seen in my life? Incredible performances. Yes, it has all those things. But standalone, yeah, it's good. it works as an action movie. And that is what I feel with Master and Commander. It was like touted as important and significant first, and then entertaining second. And I guess that was my big surprise when I came to it. I was like, this is a, f- a great time besides my like soul clenching fear of being left outside to die. RIP to all the people who have had that situation happen. I feel like that's how I'm going to go. But anyway, um, it was just a fun movie. And I don't mean that as derogatory because oftentimes if you enjoy a thing, then it can't be cinema. And I think that's fucking bullshit. Yeah, it is BS. And it's like you can appreciate the art direction, the production design, the costume, the score, the writing, just like the direction, the the some of its partsness of this film is it is what makes it special. But the hook for me was always that it was just a fucking ride. I've always looked to this movie for lead like for a for a depiction of leadership a breakdown of like there are the people that are the the book smart people in terms of what leadership is there the other people that know when to push the crew and how hard what the role is and the role of discipline and that true leadership is something that you can't define like lucky jackies he just inspires yeah, he's Something like in these men. Two, two extra two extra rations of run, but, and then Killick is just goes knows to flog someone. Then yeah. the young the, Mister Hollum, yeah. who who is it Hollum that kills himself? Yeah, yeah. he's just never going to have it. The fact, like, the scene where he sings along with the crew, mm. is so devastating to me. Just that guy who so wants doesn't want his station in life. He wants to he wants to be Jack. He wants to be beloved, and he wants to be able to lead people into battle. But at the same time, he thinks the best way to know his crew is to befriend them. Yes. And also that's not, you get that's no the, respect from these blokes no. doing that back the other way. Like there is an upstairs, and then, and downstairs. Film, then the, yeah, then the film does cover that very well. About yeah. The, basically, this is an authority structure and you, yeah. you have to have it. Otherwise, there's just chaos. And, and, I, I, and I find it really interesting of just how, like, especially for men in these situations, like how do you inspire more out of men in a situation where they should be inspired anyway. So I kind of know this story, but I would like other people to know this story because I think it's a really great examination and example of your growth and evolution (laughs) as a podcaster in the space and as a storyteller and pop culture connoisseur. But how did you get Peter Weir on this show? I never in my wildest dreams even imagined that he would be able to be contacted. So yeah, you and I have a lot of friends in the industry, some folks who are, you know, 
exhibitors, distributors, you name it. We've got a lot of friends in a lot of places and we've made a bunch of connections in our long time, you know, increasingly lengthy time in the industry. And so when you say something silly like podcaster and commander to someone, people get excited because A, it's an Australian director. It's got, you know, an Oz New Zealand star at the center of it. It was a huge movie. People yes, thank you for saying Oz New Zealand star because Russell Crowe's part Māori and yeah. I feel like that doesn't get brought up yeah, he's often enough until something is thrown and then people like remind you. With the like, greatest respect, he's a Kiwi, like he's a Kiwi first. Yeah. Aussie yeah. adopted Kiwi. He's from Kiwi. the North Island yeah. first. Hello. <laughs> so... It was a huge thing. And when I started talking about it, obviously started reaching out to our contacts going, hey, you know, who remembers the last time that you'd spoken to Peter Weir? And everyone's like, oh, The Way Back. He did a a tour for The Way Back. A film that I love, by the way. And I think very underappreciated and undervalued in his canon. And amazing actors in it. And Aaron Scott Farrell. Saoirse Ronan gives, like, she's never given a bad performance, but like she is on it in that one. Yeah. Really Uh, underrated, like just sort of like a lo-fi, subtle performance. Terrific film. And so I was like, we, we, we were working a long time and I just abandoned the idea. I was like, look, he's Australia. In my mind, he's Australian, Australia's greatest filmmaker. Um, the only person I feel like that stands close is George Miller. And so it was such a thing. I was like, look, it's probably a, it's probably a pipe dream. I will just never get him. Now, thanks to a dear friend of ours who doesn't like sharing his real name. And if Twitter still exists, you could probably find him. Another film nerd is what you you can find him. He reached out to me because he knew I was on this quest to find him different agents, different publicists, different company emails that had, we'd gone out to, and it just was never working, had publicists working on it. And he goes, I found something weird on the internet. It's the best. Weird. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I'm like, uh, go on. And he's like, page. And there's a phone number for Peter Weir. So it's a Sunday. It's early afternoon. I'm sitting in my office. And what you know is, and I think everyone knows this, like you, you don't dial landlines that much really anymore. But I immediately saw the, firstly, the area code for our state that we're in recording this right now. And then very familiar series of numbers, that, which meant that I knew that the office was like Sydney based mm. because I'd called many numbers there for mm. work and all this things. I'm like, oh, it's Sydney based. Well, this will be cool. What I'll do, I know it's a Sunday, but what I'll do is I'll just call and hopefully it's a voicemail for his production office, in which case I can at least leave a voicemail and maybe call back and just validate that that's the right number and I'll call them back on the Monday. So proud of you. Look at you, the journalist. Jumped the fuck out. They knew! And they did nothing! <laughs> they knew! And they let it happen! And so I called. And I literally called and... Picks up the phone. Hello. And I'm like... Like, I think my voice went... Huh. I was like... I was like... Uh, hello, I was like, Peter Weir? I was like... Uh, hello. Um, is this Mr. Peter Weir? Yes, it is. And what preceded was a conversation which you're not going to hear, which was a, a, a brief recorded conversation about the show, pitching him on the idea. And I talked to him and I said, you know, in my mind, you're Australia's greatest filmmaker. This is one of the best films I've ever seen. We're going to do sort of an extensive podcasting deep dive audio documentary on the film. We'd love you to be a part of it. We'd be so honored. And I feel like the international movie community would be 
so thrilled to hear you be a part of the show. You know, we've, and you, this is when you have to sort of spruik your your wares or, or like show your bona fides. I'm like, we've had, you know, people like Michael Mann and Paul Thomas Anderson. Bona fides out for the boys. Yeah, 100%. Michael Mann, Guillermo del Toro, blah. Just going through the list and I said, we'd love to have you on the show. And he said, and when I told him the title of the show, Podcaster and Commander, he chuckled and he said, it's really, it's like a, a nice idea. He goes, but he, I can give you my email which I have. And he goes, like, I'll give you my email and you can send me the pitch and I'll, and I'll think on it. And I said, look, thank you very much. Anyway, time went by, no response to the email. And I thought I have to shoot one last shot. Have to. Have to. Have to. So again, on a weekend in the middle of the day, my family, my kids are outside playing and I just went, okay, I've got to do this. So I called him and I said, it was actually his wife who answered the phone and I said, hi, can I please speak to Miss Peter Weir? And she was a bit like funny. Hi, is this Mrs. Peter Weir? <laughs> actually, no. She hung up the phone. What are you, fucking 12? I know. I just had to say, can I please speak to Miss Peter Weir? Sure. He answered the phone. I said, hi, Miss Weir. It's Blake Howard again calling it's you. Podcaster about- and commander himself. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. Podcaster of. Sailing podca- the high seas. Po- of podcaster and commander calling you. And I said, I just wanted to call you to see if you'd had a look at the pitch document. And he said, I like. With, with respect, I don't want to do it. Like, I'm not interested. And I was like, you know, obviously you're immediately deflated. Like, and I was like, look, I just want to tell you because how often do I get a chance to actually speak to who I think is the greatest Australian filmmaker? I was like, look. Wow, you really sucked his dick. <laughs> I was like, I, I, but, but I was like, I didn't say this to him, but I was like, oh, look, thank you so much for like considering it. Mm. It would have been amazing to talk to you, but I totally understand. And I just want to say, look, I'm not going to, you know, I won't, I won't pester you anymore with it, but I just want to say thank you for the opportunity and considering it. And it was a real treat. And he literally just goes, all right, I can, I can talk to you right now. Like right now. And so I hit record. What? Uh, turn my headphones up. So what you are going to hear is an all too brief, not laser focused and prepared as I may have normally have been knowing that I had time to do it. Quick conversation with Peter Weir about this film and you guys can hear what he has to say. Mr. Peter Weir, <laughs> this is so <laughs> crazy. Um, I I would say firstly that I I'm of the opinion, and I'm certainly not alone, that you're one of the greatest directors ever to come out of this country. And I've been really curious, looking at everything that you do, and particularly every 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 film that you did at this point of your career, you were traveling through, basically kicking off in Australia and then moving on to like seminal American works, Mosquito Coast, Witness, Truman Show. When you moved into O'Brien, what mm. what was the key motivating factor? I know you had been a fan of that, but when Tom Rothman sort of hands you that cutlass, was mm. this sort of a dream project? Had, had this percolated? Had you shared a love of O'Brien before being handed the mantle, so to speak? 
Yes, I've read, been reading, uh, you know, seafaring tales and moved on to um, Alexander Kent, I think I started with, who wrote fictional history of the, you know, the Napoleonic era. And um, somebody said, oh, you know, you should get on to O'Brien, which I did. And there was, of course, 20 books there. (laughs) So I was reading those just for pleasure. But I'd always had a fascination with that era of the of the French wars, you might say, from the late eighteenth century into you know, up to Trafalgar and those fighting ships of the British Navy. So that was a, just a personal interest really. And at some point in the nineties where I was reading these books casually, I was approached by um Sam Goldwyn Junior, who had the rights to it. He you know, he had a company Goldwyn Pictures or whatever it was. His yes. father was the famous Goldwyn. And uh, said, I've got the rights to the O'Brien books and I believe you're a fan. I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, would you be interested in doing a film? And I said, I just don't think it's suitable. You know, it's just the cost of it and the extent of it and the fact that, you know, you really need to spend a lot of time with these people and not just the movie length. So no, thank you. So that was the end of that. <laughs> and then some years later, there was Tom, and Tom had worked for Sam Goldwyn and had been instrumental or part of the purchase of the rights. At the time, Goldwyn was a friend. Uh, O'Brien was still alive, and he had met with um, Goldwyn and had approved his uh, doing a movie on it. And so Tom, who was this executive at Goldwyn, was involved. I think uh, I think they were going to they were looking at Charlton Heston at one point wow. to be the captain. He may conquer the land, he may slaughter the people, but it's not the end. We will rise again. And then Tom moved across to Fox, where he was number two at Fox when he gave me that sword. And I knew he must have known something of the story. I said, "Oh, it's O'Brien, right?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, I said no to that once." And <laughs> this is impressive, giving me a sword, like you know, take command. Have you, ever, have you ever had any other jobs where people have given you a sword prior to <laughs> no. prior to launching off? No, the one and only time. But it was so. You know, I said to him, "It's so much better than that awful process of pitching the story." You know, where yes. somebody tells the story, it's usually you know, predictable, and they say it's like a mix of this and a mix of that. You know, they always give you hit films that it relates to in some obscure way. But to I give a sword. I, sir, I don't imagine, just before we go back to the sword, I don't imagine how any of your, I'm just thinking of just some of the movies that came before that. How does mm. one pitch The Truman Show in a world where reality TV has not yet existed? Or, or how does one pitch The Mosquito Coast or Witness? Those movies seem pretty singular to me. I don't no, imagine they, they would have been easy to pitch. No, they weren't pitched because they were existing screenplays. Fortunately, screenplays, yeah. You know, with Dead Poets Society and um, The Truman Show. So they, they sent me the current script oh, at the time. As two different um, group producers. So that was the starting point. Oh, on, on those projects. But uh, Brian, no, there was nothing there. And so I said to Tom, you know, there was 20 books, you know, and he said, well, why don't you go away and think about it? So I, you know, reread the books and marked them up and chose one called The Far Side of the World, uh, which they changed, but to combine the title with a Master and Commander, the first of the books. 
you know, it was a catchy title. But um, that was really then up to me to choose uh, and work on. They gave me tremendous freedom to uh, borrow from some of the other books, given they had the title, you know, and the uh, options on them. So I took elements and scenes from some of the other books and put them into the screenplay that John Colley and I worked on. Yeah, I, I remember in your great forward to um, to uh, Brian Lavery's Jack Aubrey Commands, his sort of companion book, you talked about mm. you marking up uh, the different novels and having sort of like mini reference sections. This is, you know, this is Aubrey and Maturin dialogue and this is, you know, Jack commanding and this is, uh, uh, so, you know, and this is Stephen's, you know, surgery and botany discussions, yeah. you know, those sorts yeah. of things. So yeah, if you've got 20 books to, to choose from, you're literally cherry picking the very, the very best of that stuff. Yes. And also I'm sort of immersing myself in, uh, not just the world of, uh, of the British Navy at that time, but into the way of thinking of O'Brien. Yes. You know, because I knew in the end, of course, you, you end up writing, John and I did sections which are not from the books, but join bits together or, you know, almost as if it was uh, a separate book in its own right. In other words, you can't really go and read that book. No, it's, it's you can't. Really a, you can't read a book of Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. You're, you're no, getting no. The, the, you know, for example, in the first Master and Commander book, obviously you're you're getting such like relationship building and tension and all those sorts of things that are all happening that you know, you can see, you feel the DNA, but it feels like that's what that was the biggest impression that I've had of, you know, probably not being nearly as immersed as you were by the end uh, yourself and John working together to make mm. this all happen. But absolutely, as a as a now a, a fan of these books, being immersed in the DNA of the world. I think that that's if there's one thing that the fans of the of the books probably are so enamored by the film is that it's mm. in essence you capture the essence of these people in such a vivid way right from you know those first words. Also, with the experience of going on with two voyages, short voyages on the Endeavour replica. <laughs> what well, began construction in 1988 and ultimately launched in 1993 is one of the world's most accurate maritime replica vessels. It's an Australian-built version of James Cook's HMB Endeavour. It even replicates the cabin where James Cook and botanist Joseph Banks dine. And in Sydney, you can go and ride it. You know, so that was, you know, talk about DNA, that was, you know, to climb the rigging and, you know, go up the futtock shrouds and sort of experience their life at sea for even a few days was something that um, I think I could call on when we were shooting this is the second time he's done this to me there will not be a third There's something so special about the crew that you've pulled together on this movie. Not only, you know, the, obviously the top line cast people that a lot of people are going to reference, but just, uh, you know, I mean, across the board, um, Russell Boyd, Lee Smith, you know, th these are people that, uh, you know, so iconic. But could you, could you just share like any of your recollections about the the crew, this buoyant crew that you had to make mm. this happen because it's one thing that continues to strike me and move me. It's such a part of the reason for me selecting this film as a project that we wanted to cover and unpack and dissect is because I, it is just so 
rewarding and rewatchable again and again and continues to move me. Could could I ask you, like, how did that feel? Was the crew so essential to that? Do you feel that when you're making it? I'm really interested in those elements for you. Well, I think firstly, you know, you're divided into behind and in front of the camera. So I suppose my thoughts were predominantly about what we were shooting and the faces essentially we were going to be looking at and to get the right faces for the crew, given they were going to have to be on hand all the time. You know, yes. they might not work for three, three or four days, but then the camera would move from one area of the boat to another. You've got to see the same people coming and going. Yes. Uh, so a lot of work you would have know a bit about that. You know, that I went to, to get the right faces. And yes, indeed. Wonderful casting a woman, Judy Bulo, who got a lot in the States, went to bars and yacht clubs and <laughs> I said, I want, you know, 18th century faces, as it were, um, not not modern-looking people. And we got some from Poland, of all places. But uh, back to the crew, you know, yes, they were hand-picked and um, people that mostly I'd worked with, some I hadn't. But... Uh, it, I think it brought the sort of boy out in a lot of people, a lot of the males anyway. <laughs> and um, it was, you know, a sort of uh, exciting to Bond. to recreate this world. That's enough easting. Set a course south, south, west. Aye, sir. South, south, west. It's interesting you say that the film's rewatchable because actually there's not a lot in it. When I first saw the cut, first cut, I got um, really felt really uneasy because it's so light on plot that we were relying immensely uh, on on the and enjoying the atmosphere of life on board and just hoping that that would um, be satisfying to an audience. And you know it has been, I think, um, you know, given the fact that it is always on somewhere on television. <laughs> and the fact people have improved their, their home setups so much with sound and image, that's the sort of film that plays well, I suppose, if you've got a you know, really good big screen, good sound. Yeah, I mean, it plays. It absolutely plays. It's so funny that you say that because I think the thing that uh, perhaps it's aged so perfectly into itself in a contemporary world where we're so dominated by these you know, plot mechanic heavy television yeah. versions of shows. Like you're not allowed to make films like yours. I feel like, you know, everyone wants to make the se the 10 episode series of this thing. I don't imagine mm. you would have had much trouble getting the money. They would have just made you stretch this thing out over many episodes if you were going to make There's it. There's too much stretching. There's an immense amount of stretching happening on television. Oh. And the, you know, that's the problem. No one's really refined the art of making, you know, six or eight hours of, material and they have generally you find them they're just too padded don't you think you know oh. they're very slack middle couldn't agree more i would much rather revisit master and commander another 10 to 15 times as i do um then then watch something new like that because i think a lot of these tv things it's just stretched out and it's formulaic and they won't allow themselves to end and i think that even as as far as 
you know, there's sort of this cheeky and wry and beautiful unending uh, of of the master and commander story. I don't need to see what happens next. I've had such a wonderful rollicking time with these guys that I'm I'm completely satiated. You know, I'm I'm as satisfied as you're going to get me to be. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I it's so few and far between that truly. Uh, deliberately paced, structured th- uh, shows and shows that are allowing themselves to come to a conclusion that mm. just this never-ending mm. thing are allowed to happen. Jumping back to the crew, there was one very important man I should mention that, that was brought to or suggested by Lee Smith, which was Richard King doing the sound. Yes. And um, he, he just um, brought that layer of reality through sound. I mean, it was just a wonderful experience to just go through the mix with him, just all the ropes and things that he'd recorded and to get them as accurate as possible, cannon fire, obviously. Oh, the, wonderful. The, the, there is nothing like the anticipation that that creaking hull can give you in in, yeah. in, in mastering. But I just uh, yeah. Speaking of great sound systems, and we got the luxury of high definition even on streaming and things like that. Um, but yeah, that the, the creak, the whole creaks and the and the little the little creaks of you know hammocks swinging with bodies in them. Oh man, just that that anticipation. Like you said, the atmosphere. Um, it's such yeah. a world that you just want to be a part of. Well, that was wonderful going on the endeavor because you did realize that that there was always the sound of the ship. Breathing almost with its, with, as you say, the creaking and stro- groaning and stretching of ropes and and the movement of the timbers in the hull. Yes. Um, and slap of water on the bow or elsewhere. You know, it did all go in and, you know, talking that over with Richard, I, he, he went out on some sort of yacht to get the same experience. I, okay. I, that's... Absolutely more than enough. Uh, you've been so generous with me, and I just wanted to say before we, uh, before I let you go, um, in my mind, and I know you probably don't like the gush or don't appreciate it, but I'm sorry. You're just like the greatest. Oh, no, no. Very you're, nice to you. You're just this, you're the greatest Australian director that's ever lived, in my opinion, and speaking to you as a film critic and as a person who produces shows like this and even getting a, a few moments of you to, uh, you know, sort of uh, endorse endorse what we're doing and even saying that you're curious to see what I'm doing with it. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah you must send it yeah. Well, good luck with it, and uh, I'll I'll look forward to uh, to it landing on my my email. <laughs> it will. It will indeed. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Shit. I mentioned your evolution and your growth as a storyteller. You don't come from a journalism background. No. I do, and the things that rub off on each of us are very different, right? the things that you learn from people, the lessons you learn, the hustle, et cetera. Anyway, one of those things is particularly when we were doing just in the podcasts, it was being relentless. For instance, when we chased Parker Poe, not like physically chased, like <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. When we tr- pursued, what? That sounds worse. When we Pursuit tried is get, actually better. We tried to get Parker Posey on Josie in the podcasts and we tried for four, six months. Four to six months, easy. And she's eventually said no via haiku. <laughs> right like you legit cannot make this shit up but this is the thing and i remember like there were lots of times we pursued people on that show and you would be crushed when we didn't get them and it was always like yeah but it doesn't matter you only need one yes right we just keep going and so you bounce to the next person into the next person and that's the deal and it's a thing it's like journalism 101 is like you learn rejection often and 
regularly. It's not just like you're rejected once and blah, blah. It's like, oh, they didn't answer the phone. Well, you have to figure out another way. And like back in back in the day, you would show up to people's houses. You would find an address, knock on the door, say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm visiting about what blah, blah, blah story. Do you have time to talk about it? And people don't do that anymore. I'm not saying like show up at his house, but like people don't pursue a thing respectfully and earnestly. And that is why I was so proud of you with this Peter Weir story because it's like you put your feelers out, you get pointed in the right direction by people. It always comes down to somebody else like slipping a name or slipping a number or slipping, pointing you in the right direction or giving you a whisper here or a whisper there. But at the end of the day, you're the one who has to pick up the phone and make the call and speak to one of your heroes and freak out and have your little voice drop while you do it. <laughs> and that is, that's the great view. And sometimes it means you get Peter Weir. Yeah. The greatest Australian filmmaker for you on this show, right? And it makes the show. And other times you get told by LL Cool J's manager <laughs> to stop calling every day for six months to interview him for a feature article about the theme song for Deep Blue Sea called Deepest Bluest. My hat is like a shark's fin. Like like now, would that piece have ripped? Absolutely. Yes. Would it have come <laughs> as close to the pop cultural significance of podcaster and commander? Absolutely not. But you really have to believe. Yeah. You really got to believe it and you have to throw your whole pussy into it. And I'm so proud of you for throwing your whole blussy into it because you really did. Podcaster and commander is produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.